Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Mark Stuchowski podcast, the show that's all about helping you perform at an optimum level. I am Mr. Productivity, and it is my obsession to teach you how to be a more productive version of yourself. And I have just launched a brand new productivity quiz. How productive are you? Well, go to mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com. Take the productivity quiz today and find out just how productive you are today. Oh my goodness, you are in for a treat, a serious treat. I have Dr. Reagan Anderson on the show today. We cover a whole host of topics, but let me tell you, folks, you are going to be blown away by this interview. He brought the wisdom, so I'm going to stop talking. Let's get right to it. Reagan, welcome to the podcast. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you. Now, we are doing a very special episode. Normally, I do episode interviews on Mondays. They're released on Tuesdays, and then again on Wednesdays, they're released on Thursdays, but Dr. Reagan had some surgeries to do, and they kind of frown on doing podcast interviews from the OR, so we decided to do it a little later in the week. <laughs> I, I like to think of myself as very uh, productive and efficient, but uh, having a microphone while you're doing a surgery on someone's face probably is not the best Probably not the best policy. Yeah, I I, th- I would have to agree with you on that. Now, before we get started, I do want to thank you for the service to our country. Um, you were the first reconnaissance battalion surgeon for not one, but two combat tours in Iraq. And now you're a civilian dermatologist. You went to medical school. So I kind of geek out, uh, you know, watching medical shows on TV until they get to the point where they're Putting the needle in the arms, I, I, I really don't like needles, so I kind of like turn my head and tell my wife when it's safe to look. But uh, thank you for your <laughs> service to not only the country, but to your community. Absolutely. It, it honestly was my privilege. I, I learned so much from the experience, and it's kind of one of the rules of life that when you give of yourself, you always get more in return. It's, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful rule, and I, you know, I gave everything of myself uh, in the military, and I try to with my patients now. And I, I feel like I just always get so much back from the amazing people I get uh, who are under my medical privilege. It's, it's a great job. So let me ask you, because I'm a big fan of the 1970s uh, sitcom MASH. How, uh-huh. how different, if it is different, uh, from you being a battalion surgeon than Hawkeye Pierce? Well, I'm not as funny or charming, so <laughs> let's, let's, let's start with the basics here. Uh, and Nora is good looking. So, um, you know, I thought the show Mash did a did a pretty good job of representing the emotional roller coaster that is war, and and the complete unknown. So every day is you have no idea what's going to happen, how many casualties, uh, or if it's just going to be a sick call with sprained ankles and runny noses, and you don't know if your equipment's going to work. You don't know if you're going to be shot at while you're doing procedures. You don't know if you anything, uh, and and perhaps even more of what you don't know is you don't know the emotional state that you're going to be able to show up with. And, uh, you know, Iraq was uh, enormously difficult. I, I've, I've had some of the, the hardest experiences of my life were there. And it was not because I was untrained medically. It it was because there's just no way to wrap your mind around some of the eventualities that that is war. You mean they don't schedule the surgeries in the war zone? 
No, no, they don't. <laughs> I mean, I listen. I I, um, I tell a story in in my book about um, an Iraqi came in. It was a mass casualty. So mass casualties by definition mean that you do not have the resources necessary to adequately and appropriately treat everybody there. So you're just overrun. Um, so I was really good at mass casualties. I'm really good at when everything is hitting the fan, if you will. And so I got the the most injured who happened to be an Iraqi citizen. And he, um, he shot the other Marines who were the rest of the mass casualty. So mm. I was treating the Iraqi citizen and Mark, I, it's my most shameful story in life because I didn't want to treat him. I wanted to treat the Marines who were injured, but a beautiful law of war is you, you treat the ones who are most injured first. Doesn't matter what nationality, what uniform, what anything, those who are most injured are treated first and it should be that way. And I, I lost my, lost my ground there. So I actually, kind of, I, I didn't do a good job for him. And I just was trying to rush through the resuscitation as quick as possible so that I could get to the Marine. And so I called the code. Now, in most places, including in war, when possible, you have to run by the calling of a code with another provider to make, just to make sure you didn't miss anything. Mm-hmm. And so I was spouting off, you know, hypotensive, you know, low blood pressure and a bunch of multiple gunshot wounds, yada, 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 and um, hypothermic. So he, his body temperature was something like 70, 65 degrees. And there's a, there's a rule that you learn in medical school, like day one of you're not dead until you're warm and dead. And it means your body temperature has to be normal before you can call a code because what if your body temperature is just so low that your metabolism is shutting down and that's why it seems like you're dying. Mm. So the other provider who I was speaking to said, oh, hold, hold on, Reagan, stop. He, he's 67 or whatever degrees he was. I said, yeah, but we're wasting resources. The Marines need our help, yada, yada. And he looked at me and said, not dead until you're warm and dead. And I said, but, and he said, not dead until you're warm and dead. And Mark, my, my, my blood just boiled. I mean, he was right. So I I went back and I actually put my heart and soul and talents into, into resuscitating this man, this, this sentient being. And within two minutes, I got his temperature up. I got all the gunshot wounds stabilized and got him off to the surgical bay and his life was saved. And here's the ironic part of that story. Okay. So I, I feel, if you could see me right now, I just, I feel enormous shame and guilt over this. Um, but I had reached the end of my rope. It was my second combat tour. I hadn't slept in months. We were literally taking incoming mortars. So we were taking rockets while I was trying to save the man who just shot the Marines and his friends were trying to kill us for saving him. Mm. Right. So, and paint and stuff and was falling off the walls. And I, I just, I had nothing left to give. Um, and so is it like mash? Yeah. I think mash actually conveyed a lot of those moments where there, you, you are just reduced to a two-year-old child and you just want to suck your thumb and wind up in a corner and cry yourself to sleep. That's very interesting. That's very interesting because I once heard from somebody or read it someplace or saw it someplace that doctors get in the medicine, not to do billing, 
but to help people. They, they, doctors, I, I know a couple doctors I've met on LinkedIn, and they say one thing that really drives them crazy is when they have a cure, a medicine, a pill, a procedure, whatever, but the person doesn't have insurance and they know they won't get paid for it. But the doctors, and correct me if I'm wrong here, or if this, or this source, I don't remember where I heard it from, they want to help the patient. They don't care about the billing and the insurance. That's not why they become doctors. Do you agree with that? Well, sort of yes, sort of no. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still humans, right? So we have approximately $200,000 in medical school debt, just medical school debt by the time we get out of medical school. And so, yes, we, we want to be there in front of the patient and not have insurance and all these other burdens placed on us. We did not get into medicine to become accountants. And that's what we're forced to do. And the system, the entire system is kind of conspiring against us. And so while these things drive us absolutely insane to try to think, okay, what game do I have to play with the insurance company so that they don't deny care and I can actually treat this patient so they can get better? We're not into negotiating strategy, business strategy with insurance companies and what is the right combination of words to say, to twist their arm, to get them to do what's right by the patient. Um, But at the end of the day, we also have enormous debts and enormous legalities under which we try to practice medicine. And let me, let me tell you something. Let me finish the story in Iraq first, because I, I think sure. it ties into your podcast. So I went there, I resuscitated the guy, he went to surgery, he lived. It took me two minutes of concentrating and giving my best. I had wasted, I don't know, 10 minutes prior, not doing a very good job. And one of the huge lessons is it doesn't matter what job you're doing. It doesn't matter, you know, what external pressures you, you have placed on you. You want to be productive. You want to, you want to go in the right direction. Do your absolute best and move on. And sometimes we, we just kind of sit there chasing our tail by only sort of half-heartedly doing something. And it ends up costing us 10 times the amount of time than if we just put our talents and abilities into it. Um, so that's the end of the story. But to, to get to your point of insurance and stuff, we spend $6 billion, with a B, $6 billion a year on administrative tasks, trying to get patients the pharmaceuticals, the procedures, the whatever they need to get better. $6 billion a year. We waste trying to negotiate with insurance companies to get them to do what they're supposed to do. And all of those administrative things that we are trying to do are designed to make the insurance companies more money so that their shareholders can make more money. We spend approximately $2,551 per American per year on these administrative tasks to make insurance companies richer. In Canada, it's $550 per citizen per year. Mm. That amounts to $6 billion. If we were to just have one set of rules, so Mark, when you go to the doctor, you know how much a broken arm is going to cost. You know how much a sore throat is going to cost. You know all of those things. Kind of like when you go to the grocery store and get a jug of milk, you know how much that's going to cost. If we just were to have one set of rules that everybody had to live by, that would save enough money to reduce your copay and your deductible to zero and ensure every citizen in this country and have money left over to spare. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. And I'll tell you this, that when my wife lost her job, because I've been an entrepreneur since 2005, when she lost her job in August, her first job, that is in 2015, we've had no insurance since then. 
We can't afford it. We can't afford this affordable care because the deductible is like a, it might as well be a billion dollars. It's unaffordable. And it really came down to mortgage or insurance. I mean, literally housing or insurance. And so we've been blessed by not having any sickness. When my wife broke her arm, uh, her mother paid for the surgery, but it's the reality. I mean, I don't have a solution. I mean, it sounds like I never heard that, what you just said. I don't have a solution for the healthcare. I mean, I think healthcare in the United States is great. Um, I don't have a solution and I don't want to make this a political podcast, but I just want people to understand that, you know, we have not had insurance for nearly five years, you know, to go to the doctor. It's like, $95 just to walk in for no tests. And what I've been hearing from people who are financially well off, which I am not in that crowd at this point, is when you're self-insured, in other words, you have like a million, two million, five million dollars in the bank, you go into a doctor's office and they love you because there's no insurance to file. They're, they just give them their credit card and they, they get paid immediately. And they love those payments, uh, those cash patients. And I know that there's some doctors, at least in the Houston area, who don't take insurance. They don't want to deal with the insurance. Oh, you didn't get the right code. You, we couldn't read the number. They sent it back and they just hold on to, you know, without paying you. And so a lot of doctors that I've known, not, I'm not saying 20% or something like that, but a lot of doctors I've met don't take insurance because it's, it's, they, that's not what they want to do with their, with their lives. They want to serve patients and they found in their own practice, you get rid of insurance, then it kind of eliminates that, that's, um, that, uh, friction, if you will. Oh, absolutely. So the average is $60,000, um, per provider, whether it's a doctor or a PA or NP, $60,000 per year just to haggle with insurance companies to get them to pay what they're supposed to pay when a patient comes to see us. You know, you, you look at, and again, I'm not going to get political here. I'm an American. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. Um, people th- hear my name, Reagan. They're like, oh, I must be a Republican. <laughs> no, no, no. I, t- I took an oath to defend this country against enemies, foreign and domestic. And right now, I think that the partisanship that encourages people to just yell and label and, yes. and curse at each other. I don't think that that is American. And I think it's destroying this great country. But regardless, you, you look at places um, like Germany or France, you know what everything's going to cost. The yes. doctors are paid within three days. And instead of being 18% of the gross domestic product, like it is in America, their GDPs are somewhere between eight and 10 or 11%. And their outcomes are measurably greater than ours in all things. And it it comes down to productivity, right? Mm. So if I don't have to worry about literally a thousand different rules for any procedure I do, how do I write it? How do I code it? How do I put the special modifier on it? How do I, because this insurance, even it might be Blue Cross, but this is one of Blue Cross's 100 different plans and each one has a different rule. If I don't have to worry about that, how many more patients can I see? It's the same thing in our personal lives, right? So if we are scatterbrained and we have our mind on a thousand different projects that we're, we're trying to do, at some point, your, your level of competence just goes down because your, your bandwidth is so scattered. And so if, if we can zone in on something and create good habits so that our habits take us through 90 plus percent of the day, then we don't have to make every decision. We only have to make 10% of the decisions. Mm. And for physicians, if we just had one set of rules, kind of like Einstein having one set of clothes that he used every day, if we just had one set of rules, 
how many more people could we help? How much less expensive could it be? Six billion dollars, by the way. And how much more good could we do? So, Mark, you don't have insurance. If that has to be percolating constantly in the back of your mind, if I get sick, what about COVID? What about this? What about that? And and that that REM or RAM, it, it's just it's taking away part of your mental ability. And there are so so many people on this in this country. Who they might have insurance, but their insurance doesn't kick in until they spent twenty five or thirty thousand yeah. dollars. Who has that money to? That's spend? not insurance. <laughs> that's not insurance. That's that's profit for the insurance company. So, you know, I I kind of weaving in and out of of this, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's a big big problem. And the other part of of the productivity thing is. And I just got done with a, a two-hour conference for a course I'm teaching on. I'm trying to teach doctors the business of medicine because we're not taught any of it, and we're really, 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 really? bad at it. Um, yeah, we, we weren't taught even an hour of it. Well, that's not true. In uh, second-year medical school, we had a whole panel of doctors that came in to speak with us for <laughs> an afternoon. Oh, and my their goodness. Soul, their sole <laughs> advice to us was, don't get divorced, don't get divorced, don't get divorced. Oh that, was, that, oh, wow. that, was all, that was all of the business we've ever learned was don't get divorced. <laughs> oh, anyway, wow. Um, so after that two hours of that, before I started this with you, which I'm grateful for allowing me to be on, is I didn't run to the fridge and have a bunch of junk food. I had healthy, nutritious snacks so that my brain would have the essential amino acids and the omegas and everything that I need to function properly. But so many of us, especially during COVID, we're going for the comfort foods that we know are bad for us. So there was a study done last year that if you consume more than four ultra processed foods a day, now ultra processed is like your frozen pizza, your crackers, your hot dogs, your soda pops, those sort of things. So more than four ultra processed servings a day. And by the way, the average French fry serving is three to four. You have an increased risk of dying from all causes of 62%. Hmm. So think about that. The standard American diet is nothing but ultra processed junk. And most people have way more than four servings of ultra processed cereals, all that stuff a day. If for every one serving above those four, it increases 18%. So you have five servings. Now you're at 80% increased risk of dying from all causes. So if that's what's happening for all causes of death, what is it doing to your body's ability to function optimally Mm -hmm. when we keep feeding ourselves? I can't even say it's food. I don't even know what this stuff is. I mean, (laughs) these, these big manufacturers have entire teams of PhDs that sole job is to make the food as biologically and psychologically addictive as possible so that you eat as much. They even have chemicals in there that will curve when your body tells you you're full. So it will trick your brain so that even when your stomach says, hey, hey, I'm full, stop eating, you're, you keep eating because your brain has a chemical now that says it's still hungry. Yeah. And how, how are we supposed to function on this stuff? Well, it's interesting is I have interviewed over 340 guests on the show. And what's interesting when I interview people from Australia, from England, from France, from Taiwan, from 
Hong Kong, they'll say, why do you put sugar in everything? I'm like, I know. My wife and I go out and buy Ezekiel bread. It's got no preservatives, no sugar. It's all organic. It costs like five bucks and you can't leave it on your counter. You have to keep it in the freezer because it doesn't have any preservatives in it. Now, I'm not saying I'm a perfect eater. I I make a lot of mistakes. I do eat ultra processed food. Not as much as I used to. So, well, I went vegetarian last November and so I got rid of meat. I watched the, the show Game Changers and it really, you know, I'd like to maybe if you could talk on that if you can about, you know, allegedly if you don't eat meat, your blood markers go down, but we'll hold that thought for just for a second. So one of the things I did about, I think like October or something, I decided to give up the Diet Coke. And now since October, I have only drinking, 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 drunk, whatever, whatever the word is, who cares? It's my show. I can use whatever word I want. Um, I have drank only water, literally. Every single day, if I go out to eat with my wife, I bring my water. If I go to church and Bible study, I bring my water. And that really has helped. I'm also trying to eat salad every single day. Matter of fact, as we're doing this episode right now, my wife is making what I call big butt salad. It's like a lot of greens, you know, cucumbers and peppers and all that good stuff because we need that stuff. Um, you know, back in the day, in the Bible day, Jesus didn't go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> you know. Uh, they that's not what they ate you know and i and i when you go shopping you can see by what people put in their cart you know kids i weigh like 202 i think i weighed this morning there are kids who are 12 years old that weigh more than i do and you look yeah. what's in their cart it's mac and cheese it's it's that the yogurt the gogurt whatever the stuff it's all the candy and so that's a direct representative and i think the best way to do it is start small. If you're eating a horrible diet, well, then maybe start adding salad or maybe start adding more fruits and vegetables. Start small. And then as you add the good stuff, start getting rid of the old stuff. And then eventually you'll have all good stuff in your house. And I, like, I, I, true. I have good days and bad days. Like um, I'm trying to, I, and I, I think it comes down to adulting. So like, I like, I like ice cream. Okay. So, even if a gallon of ice cream's on sale, I guess it's half gallons now. I tell my wife never buy the half gallon because I know myself. But if I get an ice cream novelty, I go have an ice cream sandwich. I have it; it's done. Okay. But if I have a, if I have to go scoop ice cream, I know myself. I'm not that disciplined. I'm going to put half the half the container in my bowl. I'm also just eat out of the out of the container. And so I'm trying to figure out little things. And I know ice cream novelties, one or two a day, I'm okay. Now, am I where I want to be? No, but I do run every day. And interesting, if you've never listened to my show before, I started running the day after Hurricane Harvey left Houston, August 29th, 2017. I run three miles a day. And my mom, my, my mother's mother died from Alzheimer's. My mom is off the cliff now with Alzheimer's. I lost my mom two years ago. She's still there physically, but mentally she's gone. And so as the only child, I got to talk to her neurologist. And I said to him, I said, I was reading this article on Runner's World magazine. He goes, you're going to ask me if you run every day and if you eat better, may you never get Alzheimer's, even though your your grandmother and mom had it. I said, well, I didn't know you're a mind reader, but yes. He goes, I can't guarantee it, but if you do take care of yourself, because we've been telling people, as all the medical community has been saying, diet and exercise and sleep, diet and exercise and sleep from day one. And if you get enough sleep so the body can recover, if you eat right, if you exercise, well, now you're keeping your brain and your body in good physical, mental shape. And they say, uh, of course, there's no guarantee, but you have a less likelihood of getting it if you're taking care of yourself. 
hundred percent. You know, there's there's no new rules, right? Um, everything is old under the sun, if you will. It's what our grandparents told us: eat your fruits, eat your veggies, yep. sit up straight, and elbows off the table. I mean, end of story. I, I don't know why it's so complicated, but you know. I, first of all, I'm so sorry about your grandmother and your mom. I, I lost my grandmother uh, to Alzheimer's a couple of years ago, and it's such a horrible, uh, soul-wrenching uh, disease. And I, So I, I, I'm sorry for that. Well, thank you for but saying did- that. But what people don't understand, and I know way more about Alzheimer's than I ever did before, but unlike cancer, like if you smoke 20 packs of cigarettes a day, you have a more likelihood of getting cancer. Okay, If you drink a lot of alcohol, you can have liver, liver disease. Alzheimer's doesn't care if you're black or white, smart or dumb, uh, rich or poor. It doesn't care. And it's the sixth leading sixth leading cause of death in America. And and I'm trying to get the message out through my podcast and whatever, because people don't understand that you probably have greater control, and correct me if I'm wrong, from whether you contract Alzheimer's or not by are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting enough exercise? Are you eating the right foods? Not That's not true. the ultra processed food. So actually you can have somewhat control. So yeah, you can, I'm not going to say don't eat the ice cream, but have one ice cream sandwich and then have a salad. Or someone told me that when you have food, most of your plate should be fruits and vegetables, not, um, you know, the, 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 the cheese on the, uh, on the baked potato. No. So, so there's, they're starting to call Alzheimer's diabetes type three. Yes. I heard that. So it's, listen, right, right now we have about 12, 13% of our population who have the di- type of diabetes that comes from obesity, from being just overweight. By 2050, it'll be one third wow. of America. And if you think about all that extra sugar floating around the body that can't find its target and all that sort of thing, ask yourself how well your brain is working and how hard it has to struggle if you are diabetic. So 100%. Listen, even if it's not true, which I think it is, by the way, that if you eat mostly fruits and veggies and, and exercise and sleep and you know take care of the mind, body, and spirit, if you will, uh, even if it doesn't reduce your Alzheimer's risk, which it absolutely does, you're going to live a better life today and every day thereafter um, than you would if you were just consuming uh, McDonald's for breakfast and Taco Bell for lunch and Wendy's for dinner. You know, I, We know these things. So the the real question is, everybody knows we should be eating fruits and veggies. And yes, occasionally you can have some ice cream, but not five times a day. Uh, So why aren't we? What is the mental illness that is preventing us from actually taking care of our bodies? Right now, with COVID, because we're we're recording this on April 17th, Mm -hmm. most of the country is at stay-at-home orders. Most. So that means we don't have traffic jams. We're not having the stress of work. We... We're home and we have enormous amounts of time to exercise, to sleep, to eat well, to not drink. What are you doing at home right now? And we also know that COVID preys on the elderly. Well, you can't do much about that. But the next thing it preys on is comorbid diseases. So other diseases. And we know that smoking and obesity and these alcoholisms and all of these sorts of things contribute to it. So people at home, are you wringing your hands, watching the news 10 hours a day saying, oh my gosh, what is happening? It's yes. the zombie apocalypse while you're eating your Doritos <laughs> and dipping it in the ice cream and chugging down a Coca-Cola. Yeah. 
um, or the 10th, or are you actually doing something about it? And if you're not doing something about it, what excuse do you have? Number one. Yeah. And you've got two, the time. What, you've got the yeah, time. What, <laughs> what mental illness do you have that's keeping you from living your best life? And that's what it comes down to. Because in America, we know what we need to do. Fruits and veggies, elbows off the table, sit up straight. Yep. We have the ability to eat that stuff. In fact, if you look at how inexpensive a huge bag of carrots at Costco is, it's like two bucks. Yep. Right. I mean, it, it, you look at how inexpensive the non-processed good for you food is. Um, it comes down to mental illness that keeps us from it. Yeah. And and I think it's mental illness. And I also think it comes down to laziness because let's face it. If you go to, if you're hungry and you walk into your kitchen and you go, well, there's a, I like, I love the baby peeled carrots and I like mm-hmm. apples and sure. you go, huh, I got carrots, apple. Oh, there's ice cream in the refrigerator. Your brain's going to go, dude, I want the ice cream. But why does it do that? But your why, body's why? going, no, I want the carrots. Okay. So here's something very interesting. Do you think that you are craving the ice cream? You as Mark? No, I think we're I'm craving the dopamine hit from the sugar. Okay. Where does, where does most of the dopamine in our body live? And most people would say the brain. That's what I was so, going to say. Yeah, that's what most people would say. So actually, more dopamine and serotonin is produced in our gut. That's why they're calling the gut the second brain. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so our gut is craving it. But no, your gut doesn't actually crave it. It produces the dopamine and serotonin from the bacteria that are in our gut. Okay, well, that's interesting. So when you actually look at it, when you are craving a donut, it has nothing to do with you, Mark, craving the donut. It has to do with the type of bacteria that are in your gut and what they crave. And so that's why if you strict to really strict fruits and veggies and good food and no sugars and none of that other junk food for four weeks, you will completely change the concentration and type of bacteria that are in your gut. And then you won't be craving the donut anymore because that bacteria that says feed me donuts is no longer there. Now you might have five, 10% of you that occasionally because of something that you're going through emotionally and you've attached an uh, emotion to it. um, You might crave that donut as comfort food when something really bad happens, but the craving from the gut bacteria is gone because you now actually have a good flora in your gut. And it only takes about four weeks to completely change it. You, Mark, do not crave the donut. Your bacteria in your gut does. Hmm. You know, I'm feeling really guilty right now because we went shopping today and in the cart went a ba- box of Oreos. And yeah. and I and I know, see, I know myself. I'm like, okay, I want to make this thing stretch for a week. No, it doesn't last that long. And I've tried all the all the tricks, just get five. And then leave the container in the kitchen. And I, I really struggle with that because my doctor told me many years ago, if it's not in the house, you're not going to get yeah. your car and drive to the store and get it. And yet I, I go through these, I ebb and flow, Reagan. I will do really good, only have fruits and vegetables and salad in the house and all my vegetarian meat substitutes and really good. And then I'm like, oh, pick me up some chips ahoy or pick me up some Oreos. And I'm okay with the ice cream. It's the cookies because I will go in there and I will go for those cookies instead of getting an apple. And one of the things I want to talk to you about having an apple, I had a guest on my show oh a couple of years ago, and he says, you know, you've heard the saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And he goes, you know sure. where that came from? I said, no. He goes, because you already talked about it, gut health. If you have um, an apple a day, 
he goes, if you cut an apple, it starts, you know, the oxygenation and it starts turning brown. He says, because you, it's a living thing. He goes, so, right. so I, since I heard his podcast, so, well, since he's on my show, I should say, I eat an apple every single morning and I don't have the, the, uh, you know, the, the problems, uh, gastrointestinal problems people have because apparently it is true. An apple a day is good for you. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, again, it's what everything our grandparents told us. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> new under the sun. Okay. So I, I want you to, to consider doing something for me here. Number one, write down a journal. When you turn to your wife and say, hey, get me some Doritos or Chips Ahoy or whatever, go into a room, maybe a bathroom, because people actually leave you alone for five minutes there, and write down what your emotional state is right then and there. Because you know your body doesn't crave that. It's junk food. Yeah. So that means that you've conditioned yourself somehow. That food means something to you. It's a marker of something. And just write down, and you won't get anything for the first time or two, but after two or three months, you're going to say, oh, wow, I'm really stressed about X, Y, and Z, and that's my trigger. And then you can decide if you're going to pull the trigger or not. Or if you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to do four-mile run today instead of three. But it all comes down to, you know why people crave cheese? I I don't know if you've heard this before, but cheese has a protein called casein in it. And um, casein, when it goes into your gut and interacts with all the acids and enzymes and stuff, it turns into casomorphin. Morphine, morphine. Ah. So why in the world would we eat something that is rotten milk? I mean, come on, like, <laughs> uh, filled with bacteria. That's not something we crave, but we learn at a very young age that we get very, 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 very small hits of morphine when we eat cheese and that feeds our brain. See, it, it, all, it all comes back to our brain. So mm. we all crave things either because of our gut bacteria or because of some sort of conditioning that happened. And one of my big, big points in life is that you are in charge of your destiny. You have to know why you do things and then choose if you're going to do them. I have uh, PTSD from Iraq. You know, I did two tours over there. We, we mentioned it earlier. And I, I kind of think, Mark, that I would be, there'd be something wrong with me if I didn't have PTSD after, after what I saw and participated in over there. Now, I have a choice every day. I can either let that ruin my life or I can let it fuel me and give me more of a mission and a purpose. And every single day I get up and I, if people want to call it prayer, fine. If you want to call it affirmations, fine. If you want to call it meditation, fine. I, I don't care. What, whatever that is for you. I went to seminary before I went to medical school. So um, I call it prayer. Now to be fair. I lost my faith in Iraq and I've been trying to rebuild it ever since, but I call it prayer. But I pray every day about how my day is going to go. I look at the obstacles. I look at, hey, if there's going to be a loud noise or if there's going to be an aggressive situation, and I walk my way through what will happen if that happens. And I tell myself how the day will go. And at the end of the day, I actually um, have a gratitude thing where I make myself feel grateful, not just think about being grateful, but feel grateful about three specific things. Not, oh, I'm happy for a roof over my head. No, I'm happy that I get to live in a house with the love of my life and we get to share our lives together. And I met my wife five years ago and I love it when she smiles. I make myself feel that. And if you do these things, anything that you've gone through, anything that you've conditioned, any negative in your life, 
you'll actually have control over it, over it having control over you. And then you can actually live the best life that you've ever had because you're now in control. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things with food, with traumatic experiences, with death of loved ones, we, we all have our choice. You know, I, I had survivor's guilt for years after Iraq. And I, I write about the stuff in my book. But I, I have survivor's guilt until one day I realized that survivor's guilt was all about me justifying some sort of mindset that I wanted to have instead of living the best life possible for the people who died. Because I promise you, if they were here right now, and they said, why they wouldn't be sitting there going, Hey, wallow in it, make the worst life you can out of it. Feel sad, wind up on the street corner, put a needle in your arm. I promise you, none of them would say that they would look at me and say, Reagan, live the life I always wanted to live. Do that to honor my memory. And if we can, yeah, if we can, I promise you anybody who's going through survivor's guilt right now, it's more about you than it is about the person who died. I'm not talking about grieving. Grieving is a different thing. Survivor's guilt. I promise you when you reach for that donut, when you have that random craving for chips ahoy or whatever, it probably is not your body saying, hey, give me a bunch of really bad stuff that's going to make me function really poorly and feel horrible. Right? <laughs> it, it has something that you're conditioned. You've conditioned yourself. So once you know, you can change your destiny. Well, a couple thoughts. First of all, I found out really early in my run streak, which is like 963 or something days, um, you can't outrun a bad diet. So no, you can't. You can't. So <laughs> you have 14 donuts, you can run 14 miles, you still eat, you ate a bunch of crap. The second thing is, is it's interesting what you said about, you know, figure out why you want these food. I'm not really craving them. I mean, there's times I sent my wife to the store when she went shopping to get me some crap and she didn't get it. And I'm like, oh man, oh well. And I just went on my life. I, I, I'm trying not to have the stuff in the house. Now, I, I know myself that, you know, I like having the occasional ice cream. Okay. My wife's going to listen to this episode. She goes, occasional, maybe one or two uh, sandwiches a day, but that's why I don't get the gallons. I get the, the novelties. <laughs> but the thing is, it is like, I need to get back to what I used to do and not have it in the house. Now I do go out and buy protein bars because protein mm-hmm. bars get a little bit of sweetness, but they give you that protein hit, which means if I have something in my belly, that's going to keep me happy. I won't eat for a while. And when I started getting into fitness and nutrition, I found out that my mom, unbeknownst to her, was lying to me. A good breakfast is not sugared cereal. Well, mom didn't let me have sugared cereal. I would get the unsugared cereal and pour a, a you know a whole pound of sugar on it, and then have orange juice with you know or, with a piece of fruit, you know, and donuts. That was the worst way to start your day. Now. I, I alternate my meals. I either have avocado toast with scrambled eggs and two plant-based sausages. That's on a good day. It's on Ezekiel bread, so it's organic and sugar-free. Then on the other days, I have pancakes. So uh, like I said, nobody is perfect. I don't care if Correct. you're the most fit person out there. You do have your guilty things. We all do things wrong. People make fun of me when you know I, I have a bad habit of biting my fingernails. And I, I think it's funny when the person tell me that is smoking a cigarette. I'm like, hello, um, <laughs> biting your fingernails doesn't cause cancer. Okay. So I don't, I try not to judge people. We all have issues. 
everybody has issues. Some people don't want to get out and exercise. Some people don't want to give up the Doritos. Some people don't want to give up the Coke, Coca-Cola, not cocaine. You shouldn't have Coke. (laughs) Um, It's funny joke because my aunt used to sell me everything in moderation. I said, no, Aunt Rory, you can't beat someone in moderation or do cocaine in moderation. She goes, touche. So (laughs) I don't say everything in moderation anymore. But the point is, is we got, if you're over 18, you got to practice adulting. Okay. No one puts a gun to my head and forces me to eat these ice cream, ice cream novelties or to have French fries because I like to have you know my plant-based burgers with French fries or to eat the Oreo cookies. We have to take responsibility and say, look it, I don't need the Oreos. There's nothing nutritional about the Oreos. Nothing. My body doesn't go, yay. The body goes, okay, keep on going. Go out the other end. Give us something we need. And so we have to practice adulting. And I think... Because when you look at the good food, uh, like if you go in a store, if you buy something that's vegetarian, it's more expensive. If you buy something that's like really good for you, it tends to be more expensive. You buy the donuts, you buy the cookies, the cupcakes, or they're more, they're, they're in greater supply, which is part of the problem. So it's a lot easier to buy cookies because you have to go past, and at least here in Houston, you have to walk past the bakery to get to the produce section. Is that is it the same thing where you are? Um. In Colorado, we we tend to be a little healthier, so most of it you walk through the produce before you get really to the junk. okay, yeah. okay. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, little cultural differences. Well, now do you have to walk past the marijuana stand in the front uh, of the grocery uh, stores? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, okay. can, can I can I tell you something that's driving me absolutely insane about these stay at home orders? Is that in Colorado? Alcohol stores and marijuana stores are considered essential. <laughs> so I I was having a conversation with my wife of. Okay, when do I take cancers off of people's face? I, you know, I took two, two and a half weeks off, but there are cancers on people's faces. And even if they're not going to kill them, the emotional that they're going through. And I said, and yet the marijuana stores are, are essential and they're busy all day long. It, it, and here's the other crazy thing, the alcohol stores too. Well, we know if you consume alcohol, that alcoholics and people who consume a lot of alcohol, they lower their zinc levels in their body. And we know that zinc is one of the most important things that you need to have in your body to fight a virus. And we know that zinc is important for helping with COVID. Now you can't have too much zinc because it will deplete your copper stores. So everybody listening to this, don't go out and go crazy on zinc, but get the right amounts. But the alcohol stores are essential and they are having a booming year, which means people are depleting their zinc not getting nutritional content because there's a ton of calories in alcohol, huge sugar load, and it just drives me insane. Drives I, me insane. I remember a couple of years ago, I went to get an eye exam and I asked my ophthalmologist, I said, just out of curiosity, I heard that smoking marijuana helps with glaucoma. And he said, do you smoke? I said, oh, no, I don't go near drugs. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't drink nothing. I'm, I'm a boring person. And he goes, well, first of all, yes, they think it may, but it's not the, uh, what's the THC or HTC? What's, what's is the one that makes you high? What the parts? The that make, THC. Yeah. The THC. He says, it's not, that's not the part that cure, that, that may affect glaucoma. So people who are, want to get legalized marijuana the, for medical, they, they want to get high. Okay. Let's call it what it is. They don't want the good part because the good part doesn't make you high. Am I correct? Yeah. Yes. So there's, it's a huge topic. I actually just got done writing. Um, co-writing a chapter in a book, the first medical marijuana textbook out there. And it's basically every specialty and it'll be out in the next month or two. But 
it's a medicinal plant. So, you know, God put it here for a reason and, and it's for our use, but like everything, it can be abused. So in dermatology, there is there are going to be some great uses for different parts of, of the marijuana plant that interact with what we call cannabinoid receptors. And it has a great anti-inflammatory effect on the body. The interesting thing is when you go to the store and you see these things, the, the cannabis products, the marijuana products, and they say no THC or none of the the stuff that makes you high, one third of those products that claim to have no psychoactive substance have enough of the THC in them to get you stoned by putting it on your skin. One what? third. And people are getting the stuff and putting it on their babies and babies have a much greater body surface area oh my goodness. than adults do. And so they're getting stoned. And it's one of the huge, here's another problem with the topical marijuana stuff is that marijuana is an amazing plant for uh, detoxifying soil. So if you have heavy metal contaminants or any other sort of contaminants in soil, you can do a couple of rounds of marijuana plants. And after a couple of crops, you can grow food on that soil. No problem. But here's the problem that all of those heavy metals, they go right into the marijuana plant and then they're processing it and then people are eating it or rubbing it on their skin or smoking it. And if you look at people who consume these products, whether it's outright street marijuana or the medical stuff, their levels of heavy metals in their body are way higher than the general population. Their levels of pesticides and rodenticides are way higher than anybody else. Their levels of of mold and um, inflammatory markers of mold and fungus are way higher as well. So, you know, people are saying, oh, it's natural, it's natural. And well, yes, it is. And while yes, I think in a decade when we have time to do the studies for the right part of the plant for the right indication in the right amount and have reproducibility for it, it'll be an amazing thing that will help a lot of people. But right now you're playing Russian roulette and I, people are saying, oh, come on, Reagan, it's, it's pot. I, I'm sorry. Look at the studies. Look at the studies. You're, you're playing Russian roulette. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, we have covered a lot of ground on this episode. <laughs> and listen, your, your head's probably spinning. But like I always tell you, you know, just take one thing we talked about and figure out how you can apply it to your life. But before we go, uh, Reagan, is there anything we didn't talk? We talked about a lot of things, but is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to share with us? No, I, I, I just would like to reiterate one thing. We, we all control our destiny, all of us. Now, maybe if a Mack truck hits us, that, that's, a, that's a, another discussion. But, you know, when Nelson Mandela was let, let out of prison, they asked him how mad he was for spending 20 some odd years in a prison cell in Africa. And, I, and I, I'm not sure, but I don't think that they're nice over there. Um, and he said, why would I be mad? They gave me decades I think it was 27 years, but don't quote me on that. They gave me decades to figure out how to change the world. Mm-hmm. Right? So all of us have these things, these heartaches, these traumas, these past whatever struggles that we have to go through. It's how we deal with them. Do we deal with them by Doritos and alcohol and marijuana and obesity and yelling and anger? Or do we deal with them by eating well, exercising, living our best life, contributing, helping our neighbor, loving ourselves, loving, loving our, our neighbor, all of these sorts of things. The choice is ours. A lot of us in America and across the world, we like to think we're victims because we, we don't want to look at ourselves as having infinite potential. 
but you do. The choice is yours. You just have to do the little habits. And it's like you said, look, if you don't have it in house, you're not going to eat it. So you don't have to be disciplined, you know, 24, seven, 365. You have to be disciplined for 20 minutes once every other week while you're at the grocery store. That's it. Yes. Yes. That's it, man. Don't make things so hard. Yes. You know, set your, I get up at four o'clock every morning and I work out. Is there a single morning I actually want to do that? <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but, and then I make an avocado drink with blueberries and all that good stuff. Right. But when I'm done, is there a single morning I said, gosh, I really wish I didn't work out. Not a one, not a <laughs> one. I mean, we all know these things. So if we just develop the habits, be disciplined for 20 minutes instead of 24, seven, 365. Uh, our life will be ours for the choosing. Awesome. I absolutely love that. So where can we find more about you online? I have a website. Um, it's Reagan B as in boy, Anderson.com. And um, yeah, it's all the different stuff I do. One of the things is the book I wrote. Um, and the book I wrote is uh, talking about stories from Iraq, stories from America as a doctor and as a veteran trying to get care. So it's 90% story and 10% explaining why healthcare is how it is in this country, and more importantly, what we can do to make it better. Hmm. So, uh, but yeah, ReaganBAnderson.com. That's all my stuff. And I will put that link in the show notes. Uh, Reagan, I got a feeling you and I could have talked for four hours. I mean, you're such uh, a delight. I'm probably going to have you back on the show because I I think we only tapped the tip of the iceberg on this show. You're an absolute delight having you on the show. So thank you so much for being on today. Well, it's my privilege and honor. Thank you for what you do. And thank you so much for for teaching so many people what they, what they could do if they, if they just decided to. It's an amazing gift you're giving so many. So thank you. And just before we go, don't forget to head on over to my website, mrproductivity.com, M-I-S-T-E-R, mrproductivity.com. Take the productivity quiz and find out just how productive you really are. It's free. It's at mrproductivity.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mark Stuchowski podcast. Until we meet again, my friend, go be productive.